0: Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik.
1: Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatik, your co-host, sitting here with Aaron Cameron, your other co-host. Today we are at the Land and Development Conference, recording here as part of our Real Estate Forum series. And our guest is Adam Paul, who is President and CEO of First Capital. Welcome.
2: Thank you very much guys. So we always start these interviews off with kind of how you got into real estate and what your kind of background is. So maybe just start from the moment you realized you wanted to be in this, in this industry. Yeah, it was uh, unexplainably clear to me at a
0: pretty early age. So How early? Uh, like six like or? Not that early, <laughs> no, but kind of high school, university okay. for sure. Always very entrepreneurial by nature. And so I had had a bunch of very small businesses that kind of paid my way through school and things like that, but always drawn to real estate. I say unexplainable because most people that I know that were like that had some connection to it, typically through family. None of my family's been in real estate, but certainly at the university level, I knew that I would pursue a career in real estate and and started to pool together whatever capital I could, convince some friends to contribute as well and started buying very small properties, triplex, sure. residential properties in the Allen Road and Lawrence area.
2: That that was very educational. Very lucky that we made money looking back. How did those calls go? Being like, "I know nothing about real estate. I've never done this before, but can I have some can I have some money?"
0: Yeah, it was all it was only 3 or 4 friends who okay. who knew me well and knew yeah, my trusted, Yeah, right. it was more more about trust in my entrepreneurial activities up until that point more than looking at my real estate success, which <laughs>
1: did not exist, so. So, did you get uh, four yeses from four friends, or did you get some noes from uh, from other people?
0: No, I got four yeses, and it wasn't uh, like a hard sell. I, you know, casually mentioned what I was thinking of doing, and uh, you know, opening up the opportunity to. Two or three very lucky friends who I would uh, <laughs> allow to participate, and so who are
2: still riding your coattails today? <laughs> no, 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 no,
0: not at all. But uh, so it—it it, it wasn't a hard sell. The business case made a lot of sense, and. Yeah, it was basically I, I was three for three on the first one, so
1: it's an incredible sales track record.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: it was only three times. So uh, that, made it, that made it easier for the
2: listeners. We're to the middle of lunch, so uh, you know, good for you, Adam, for staying focused on this. There's about you know a thousand people walking by right now, so uh, we, we don't blame you if you're you're losing mind, losing track of the conversation a little bit. So keep going then. So you started to yeah. invested in a couple of townhouses or three plexes at the time, yeah, and, yeah. and that started that that was, was the seed of sort of you know, the real estate bug? Yeah, that
0: converted kind of uh, passion and idea into a, a real life scenario. And so I was in university at the time and I uh, decided early on in university that I would pursue the CA designation, now the CPA designation, which I thought would be a great foundation for a career in business. Never was necessarily drawn to a career in the accounting field, but was very committed to to getting that designation, which which I did and focused on real estate as much as I could doing that. So I, I articled with PricewaterhouseCoopers and I was fortunate to get onto the Oxford audit at the time, which was as close as I could get to real estate given uh, the constraints of pursuing that designation. So I did that. That takes about three and a half years or did back then. And then the right place at the right time cross paths with Stephen Johnson, who was the CEO of Creed. And effectively, he hired me working directly for him in an analytical role that Really was the start of my professional career in real estate. And
2: Were you still trading real estate on the side? It just no, no. You're, no
0: at no, that point, you were no, too busy with other things.
2: Yeah, by that point, I started to get a uh,
0: window into commercial real estate, which for me was a lot more attractive at the time. And it really, I threw everything I had into that role and uh, learning as much as I could. And so there was really no time for anything else.
1: So what, when did you enter and exit then? Your your first, your very first projects at uh, Avenue Avenue Lawrence, was it? Uh, it's Allen Road in oh, Lawrence. Road, yeah. yeah. For those that don't know, Toronto—that's, uh, I guess, the, the northern end of Midtown, fairly just desirable the, area.
0: Just in the West End there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I was in university. So that would have been uh, mid to mid to late nineties. Okay. and When did you exit those? Uh, it
1: was. Uh, I'm just trying to think of the next year. Around in the early two thousands. Okay, so they, they were profitable time to get in and out of desirable real estate. Your four friends must have been pretty happy.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. The returns, I I mean, the, the returns were like on equity about 30%. So again, we were dealing with a small absolute dollar base, which made it easier, but yeah, they were, they were thrilled and I was thrilled to kind of get out and move on and learned a lot of lessons looking back, very naive at the time, but it was an incredible education. And luckily we made some money as well. So now you're at Crete, then what happened? So at Crete, so Steven Johnson hired me effectively in a role that I would describe as his analyst for all things he was involved in, especially acquisitions. And so Steven's a very analytical guy. So that covered a broad range of things What a great business. opportunity. Yeah, it was did, phenomenal. Did you, did you
2: have to pitch him on this or was how was the that, that it was just happenstance that he kind of came across you and was impressed by your abilities?
0: Well, you know, it's funny. You, you're part of you know, achieving some level of success in career involves recognizing opportunities and a little bit of luck. And so those were the two things that intersected there looking back on my career at this point. Uh, And so I was about to finish my articling time at PwC, meaning I could now leave the accounting profession. I had never had really a corporate interview except for going through the accounting firm process because I'd always had my own small businesses. And so I thought, better start getting some interview experience under my belt. And I saw a posting at Crete for an assistant controller role, which I had no intention of accepting at the time because I was trying to get onto more of the principal side of the business versus, or the transaction side versus the accounting finance side. And I didn't know anyone at Crete. So I said, well, maybe I'll meet someone at Crete as well. So I went in for the interview what I learned later is that they had already filled that assistant controller role, but Stephen had put together a checklist of 10 characteristics that he was looking for. In uh, It was a senior role. It was a head of acquisitions role. And I had nine of the 10. Experience,
2: experience being the one that you didn't know. That was the one I lacked. <laughs> but
0: Stephen was also the type of guy that had the most success developing people versus hiring seasoned people. And so his ability to influence my development, I think, was a big factor for him. So I went in for the interview, it was, was with their head of HR. And then a few days later, I got a call from the CEO, Steven's assistant, saying he'd like to set up breakfast. And we met for over a six-month period, we met probably six or seven times. It, it was actually a big bet for him because it was a, a situation where he would be investing a lot of time in someone who was doing the opposite of hitting the ground running. And so I was really not trying to sell him on me, but trying to open myself up for how I worked and what my expectations were and how I thought over time I could contribute. And ultimately, he was convinced that, you know, he was really taking a step back to get two or three steps forward. So it took some time for him to get comfortable in doing that. And, and so after those several months, you know, I remember he made me a, an offer and I tried to negotiate the offer. The truth is, I would have gone for free. I literally would have gone for <laughs> of free course. because of the experience. And he probably knew that. He did because it was a short negotiation. I thought, especially in a role on acquisitions, you need to demonstrate some form of negotiation. What I learned later on is that works when you have some leverage, and <laughs> yeah. I, I had done. So it was a very short discussion, and, and I was delighted that he took the chance on me. And basically, I worked closely with him for 10 years in a very steep, growth and learning
2: curve at Crete. And that's really where I learned the business and I learned a lot from him. He was one of my mentors. Few better opportunities for some a younger person to learn the industry. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of things that kind of coincided. It was the role being exposed to a lot of
0: parts of the business. It was working directly for the guy running the company. It was a small company, so very lean. Small meaning the people side were, were small relative to the size of the business. So it allowed you to get involved in a lot of things and touch a lot of things.
1: And then First Cap, your
0: time there. Yeah, so First Cap. So everything was going well at Crete and uh, had a lot of loyalty to Stephen and the company for the
2: opportunity. And, and you'd been there through a huge growth period. So you, yeah. you you'd witnessed it going from, sort of like you said, a smaller entity to a much sort of larger, one of the largest sort of REITs in the country, right?
0: Absolutely, with a lot of success along the way. And And at that point, there were really three of us running the company. So Rail Diamond, who was a friend first, uh, a colleague second, but he had come over a few years earlier and things were great. But then this call kind of came out of the blue from Dory and it was an opportunity to come into an even larger company, very dynamic in the CEO role. And it was a great opportunity for me in the sense as well that I had been at Crete for 10 years. So I had done a lot of what I was capable of doing with Crete. And then I looked at First
2: Capital and saw a much bigger opportunity for me to make an impact and implement probably some of the things you'd already done at Crete that First Capital had yet to absolutely had yet to because on. I
0: remember and, and Dory and the board felt the same way that there were some things that First Capital had done much better than Crete and a lot of other things that Crete had done much better than First Capital and and we thought there was a great opportunity to try and marry those up
2: and and ultimately make First Capital a much and how did, company. And how did Dory get exposed to in the first place? I mean we how did he know about you and have the sense that you'd be a good fit for that role? Yeah, that that's a good
0: question because we didn't know each other. We knew each other in passing at conferences like this, but certainly didn't know each other well. But Dory had two or three people in the industry that he trusted a lot and independently of each other had, had all suggested he talk to me. And so he actually came to a conference like this and I was on a development panel and he had heard me on the panel. And when I got back to my office had a voice message from him asking to meet for a coffee and which we did a couple of weeks later and you know it's funny when we did he would he was talking to me as if I was being offered the job and I remember saying to him look I'm really flattered but you should take some time to get to know me to make sure that you know this would have been a risky thing for both myself and the company if it wasn't successful so I remember initially at least he was kind of well ahead of me at the time but we had spent my interview process, I quote, was uh, effectively us touring properties on the weekend for several weeks and just talking about what we saw, what the opportunities were, what we would do, what we wouldn 't do and Dory is a real estate guy at heart, and so that I think was a real important part of the process so so that 's really how it unfolded and How did Stephen take it? I mean Stephen initially was disappointed because you know we, we had uh, worked very closely for a long period of time and we were at different ends of the spectrum in terms of our career. He's, he's now just retired. And so I was part of the plan of Crete going forward and kind of out of the blue, you know, I'm stepping away. So, but you know, Stephen's a professional and the Crete business was very strong and much stronger than any one individual. And so I've maintained a good relationship with Stephen. We still get together for dinner and certainly there's no hard feelings. I think it's worked out well for everyone actually.
2: So you're now at First Capital. I mean, what was the first year like? What were the first things that you are doing to try to kind of assimilate yourself and make an impact and kind of take the company into your own direction? I guess now you've got a little bit more unfettered control than you did when you were at, at Crete. What was that transition like for you personally? Yeah, that transition was very exciting.
0: And, you know, as real estate executives, Dory and I probably could not be more different. And so my first two months, I remember spending 100% of my time with our assets and our people and doing a lot of listening more than anything else. So didn't meet with one investor. Like I really focused on getting my arms around our platform, which was our people and our real estate. And then it became very obvious to me as an outsider coming in that there were some great opportunities to to make some changes that would improve the the platform for where we were heading. And so Dory did a tremendous job growing First Capital into a big company in a very short period of time. But now what we needed was a different org structure and we needed some different people and we needed some tweaks to the culture. So that culminated with uh, restructuring of the workforce and the org structure in September of 2015. So I started in February. So this is several months later. And about 20% of our people left the company in a four-hour period. And... That's, that, hard, that's hard to that, go through. That, that was hard to go through, but it was a great thing. And it was done in a very thoughtful way and a very respectful way for the people that were leaving, which had a big impact on the people that stayed. And, and that really, that was the day, I, I looking back, that I would say we started to not change course, but we kind of shifted to make sure we were in the best position possible to maximize our success going forward. And I would say now we're a few years later and there's certainly not much I would have done differently at that time.
1: Uh, The project you've worked on since uh, 2015, what are you most proud of? In terms of a single project? Yeah. Maybe give us some details as a background. Yeah, I mean,
0: I would have to look to what we've done in the Yorkville neighborhood because our position started there before I arrived at FCR with the acquisition of the former Hazleton Lanes Mall. And we effectively rebuilt it from the inside out while continuing to operate it. And that in itself was a massive feat that took many years. And what I think I'm most proud of just off the cuff is what our team has been able to achieve in that neighborhood. So we started out with an acquisition that was a little over $100 million. Today, we've got over $750 million invested in the neighborhood with some of the most desirable real estate in the country in a neighborhood that's going to double in population over the next five to seven years and a position that today I I don't think we could replicate. And so the level of creativity and the focus on things outside of individual spaces that get leased to public realm, enhancing the pedestrian network in the neighborhood, these are things that evolved the way many of our people think about real estate. And it's it's resulted in us repositioning real estate and effectively doubling ground floor rents in Yorkville over a three to four year period. So we're getting the financial reward from it, but on the qualitative and creative side, it's allowed the platform to achieve a different level. It's the only place in our company where we have luxury apparel, and. We started bringing luxury apparel back to Yorkville by a proactive approach to Chanel and convincing them to relocate off of Bluer. And then that totally changed the path, the short-term path that Yorkville was on. And so doing things outside of our typical box, which, you know, as we look 10, 15 years ahead, that's going to be a critical skill set for success in our business. And so when I look at how the platforms evolved, how our portfolios evolved, how our position has evolved there, that's what I'd be most proud of at this stage.
1: And for those not from Toronto, just to take one step further back, Yorkville is the most expensive real estate in the city. It's in not- the country. In the country. In yeah. the country,
0: yeah. From it's, a retail yeah. and residential perspective.
1: So doubling rents from already the most expensive to now, double the most expensive. Yeah. And at least I can tell you what you know, my personal impression of and Lane's mall before your acquisition, it was a strange underperforming mall at a corner that should be, you know, somebody's crown jewel. And yep. you've done an incredible job of changing the entire way that mall feels and the way that people you know interact with it. Yeah,
0: yeah, and and we felt that what was what would be required to do that is a, is a total rebuild, so total redesign, and so to do that and execute it in an urban setting
2: while it's operating is is a very challenging thing to do. Yeah. So. Now, I guess, maybe stepping a step back from just the particular details, you've been really sort of in control for three or four years of First Capital. And what are you spending most of your time on? Is it, or maybe let's back up even further. Why don't you do the elevator pitch? What does is, what is First Capital stand for now? What markets are you in? Sort of, what is First Capital in your mind today? Well, First Capital is an evolved
0: company and we have long been a leader in urban real estate in Canada. And we've done a lot of work over the last 12 months, both at the executive and the board level. uh, And we've evolved our strategy and we came out publicly in February and articulated what that evolved strategy means. And it's taken the company from an urban focus to a super urban focus. And what that means for us is the geographic boundaries for where we invest have shrunk. And I'm, I'm not talking cities. We've always been focused on the major cities. I'm talking about neighborhoods within those cities so that we are focused on the most dense, highest growth neighborhoods in the country. And we believe that based on our platform capabilities,
2: that's where we'll achieve so the most you, success. That would be beyond sort of transit oriented to even more sort of specific hubs in particular in, exactly. p- in particular cities
0: exactly and we're doing that because we've analyzed where we've had the most success and there's a strong correlation there and and so it's not a new strategy it's an evolved strategy and we already have major positions if you look at the Liberty Village neighborhood in West Downtown Toronto and Bloor Yorkville we've got over 12% of our balance sheet in just those two neighborhoods alone that's very unique none of our peers would have a, as high of a concentration in a single neighborhood as we do and so We've evolved in that way. And what we've also figured out is that the neighborhood attributes that compelled us to invest from a retail perspective were the same attributes that drove a lot of success in other synergistic asset classes. And so historically we've been a lot more retail focused and we've I mean everything we've done pretty much for the last number of years has been mixed use, but we've often sold off in some way, shape or form the non-retail components and that's changed now. We're, we're much more desirous of, of staying invested in the non-retail components. So very neighborhood focused, more asset class agnostic. And what cities, just for the listeners? So almost half our portfolio is in Toronto. So that's obviously our largest and most core city. Also where we have the most opportunity. Montreal is a major city for us. Vancouver is, Calgary and Edmonton. And then to a lesser degree, just by size of our portfolio, Ottawa.
1: So given that you're shooting for, you know, what is arguably the best real estate in the best markets, how tough is it to find those opportunities?
0: Yeah, it's very tough. It's very tough. And it's very tough if you do find them to rationalize being able to afford them in the context of the cost of capital. And so one of the things that was an important factor in us evolving our strategy this way is that we have the raw material in the business today for many, many years. We, we own about 24 million square feet of built space today. We have identified an additional 23 and a half million square feet of space we can add to our existing properties. And so the redevelopment of single story retail properties in urban markets where you have often surface parking and you can demolish those properties and in many cases increase the density by six, seven, eight times that's a very important part of our growth strategy. And absent that, this would be a very difficult strategy to execute successfully.
1: So you don't get as excited about a listing that goes up in a neighborhood that you like, that's going to be bid on by numerous institutions because the yield gets so thin. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's a fair statement. I mean, if we're good at what we do, we are at the
0: table with the vendor before it gets to that stage. We may not agree on price and it may lead there, uh, which has happened before. But the other thing about you know, increasing these large positions and exiting ones where that's not achievable is the platform ends up being a lot more focused. And when you're more focused, it means you're more knowledgeable, you're more, you're more a part of the neighborhood and the community and what's going on in it. And that extends to the relationships that you have there as well. So if you think about it today, we've got about 166 properties. I would be thrilled if in five years we had a hundred properties, the value of the portfolio will be higher but if you think about all the people leasing, asset management, property management, that spend time on our assets, if you're spending
2: more time on fewer assets, you
0: generally find better opportunities.
2: Yeah. That's a good segue into your approach to communities and the challenges of you have in certain instances with the intensification of existing land. Maybe use use Humbertown, which is, a, I know there's been some conversations, lots of conversations that have gone on there and how you approach engaging those communities. Uh, and for those that aren't familiar, Humbertown is sort of a, a real estate on Royal York, kind of the heart of Etobicoke. Yeah, I live a walking distance from there. Yeah, so and I'm and just it. maybe what your what your approaches are, maybe the lessons you've learned, and this is sort of other instances with that kind of um, that kind of approach to community building. Well, it's a very important part of
0: what we do, and our preference is, I'll step back. Developers fall into various categories, and a lot of the issues that community groups have had with developers. I believe stems from the fact that many of them are in and out over a relatively short period of time. Our mindset on these assets we're building is that we're going to own them forever. And that's a big deal because you, you're part of the community you're forever. The, you're yeah. part of the community, but you also do things that you wouldn't do if your sole objective was to maximize profit on day 1 of completion. We believe that our approach, while it may not necessarily maximize profit on day one, it maximizes profit over time. And, you know, for example, we've got a very active public arts program. We think it's an important part of placemaking and community building. It adds an element of uniqueness to the neighborhoods that we're in. It ends up creating central places in the property where people enjoy hanging out or spending time. And so, that's something we pay for and we create and we don't build leasable space on that area. We put public art. That doesn't make sense if you're a merchant developer in most cases.
2: It's interesting. You know, we hear that theme regularly about how developers kind of get painted with this brush of being the devil, but because you're in there for the long haul, you clearly need to make sure that you're creating a community that's attractive and profitable, but, but also, you know, something that you're going to be proud of in 30 years because you're still going to own it then. Yeah, I, I would say the, the summary of it is there's more alignment
0: with us in the community than a merchant developer would have with the community. And as we continue to do this and build out spaces and create neighborhoods, you know, our reputation is impacted by that and the city from the city to community groups, and they see what we do and they, they're able to compare us to others. And, you know, ideally we're viewed more favorably, and it certainly seems to be that way.
1: I'd love to talk more about super urban focused real estate, but we have to let Adam go. He's got a panel coming up where he's going to interview Doris Segal, his uh, predecessor. And uh, I think Aaron and I are going to watch that too. So, Adam, we want to thank you for coming on today. We appreciate your time and uh, your insight. We want to thank Informa for having us here at the Land Development Conference to record. And uh, we want to thank our sponsor, First National. Adam, we look forward to uh, hearing you speak shortly. Okay, very good. Thanks Thanks, very much, guys.
0: Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.